welcome to Forecast, the Foreshadow podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. I'm Josh, the editor of Foreshadow, an online literary magazine featuring work that points to the kingdom of God. Today's episode is called Spoilers Ahead, partly because I begin by discussing two films in which I reveal key elements to the plot. So if you haven't seen them, then be warned. Spoilers ahead. I will be looking at some aspects of eschatology in these films. If you don't know, eschatology is the study of last things, whether that's the end of our personal lives or the end of the age and the world. How will the world end? What happens to us when we die? Is there a life beyond death, both for ourselves as individuals and for the whole universe? These are some questions that eschatology asks. The Christian faith is eschatological because it's rooted in the hope that there is life after death, as shown most clearly in the resurrection of Jesus. As it says in the Nicene Creed, Jesus Christ is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And I await the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. But it's not only Christians that ask eschatological questions, of course. We also see them explored in popular culture, like in films. So today I'll be looking at eschatology in two films. The first is Christopher Nolan's recent film, Tenet. Others have already commented helpfully on the personal dimensions of eschatology in this film, such as the contrast between the self-sacrifice motivated out of love by the main characters, Neil and the protagonist, versus the selfish grasping of others by the antagonist, Sator. So today I'd like to explore some of the more universal eschatological dimensions of the film that I haven't heard many people discussing. In this story, a secret agent called the protagonist is recruited by an agency from the future called Tenet to prevent an attack that would destroy our world by using radioactive materials that reverse entropy and even time itself. The protagonist resolves the conflict by traveling backwards in time to the past. He learns that a future version of himself creates the organization Tenet in the future, so basically he recruits himself in this mission. If this doesn't make any sense, just try to follow along anyway. As one character in the film says concerning the physics of reverse entropy, don't try to understand it. The protagonist's enemies are a group of people from the future whose world has been devastated by climate change. They believe their only hope is to reverse the entropy of the world so that they can live in an inhabitable planet. They plan to do this by detonating a nuclear bomb next to a device called the algorithm. And in so doing, they would destroy our world, the world that moves forwards in time, and create a new world that moves backwards in time, a world that is safe from the effects of climate change, like starting over again. As Sator describes it, somewhere, sometime, Armageddon is both triggered and avoided. Their oceans rose and their rivers ran dry, can't you see they have no choice but to turn back? Part of what makes this film compelling is, to some degree, 
the almost reasonable perspective of those who wish to create a new world by destroying this one. But the protagonist concludes that it's every generation's duty to protect their own survival, and thus he must protect his world by stopping Sator and dismantling the algorithm, which he eventually does. In his final dialogue with Sator, the protagonist suggests that what makes us human is our faith in the unseen, in God and in a future beyond our present experience. You don't believe in God or a new future, the protagonist tells Sator, or anything outside your own experience. That's all any of us knows, Sator says. The rest is belief, and I don't have it. Without it, you're not human, the protagonist says. You're a madman. Or a god of sorts, Sator says. Like I said, the protagonist says. Thus, while the protagonist doesn't offer a solution to climate change and the end of our world, he does suggest that the solution is not in destroying this world to create a new one on our own power. He seems to hint that we will need faith to see a solution beyond what the material evidence shows us. We need a vision that can see further than our despair. Here I wish to momentarily jump to another sci-fi film by Christopher Nolan, Interstellar, which came out in 2014. As in Tenet, this film it depicts a future planet Earth devastated by climate change to the point that, unless humans find another inhabitable world to live on, they will likely perish. The film takes place on a corn farm in the American Midwest. Maize is now the only crop farmers can grow, and even then, the farms suffer from blight and storms. The main character, Cooper, a former NASA pilot, has been selected to pilot a spacecraft in search of a habitable world. This world, they discover, is on the edge of a black hole, and in the midst of their journey, Cooper and a robot called TARS must eject themselves to shed weight, and in so doing they get sucked into the black hole. They find themselves in what they call a tesseract, where Cooper discovers he is able to communicate important information across time and space to his daughter on Earth, Murphy, which enables the humans on Earth to make mass journeys through space, meaning humanity will survive after all. After Cooper does this, he is removed from the Tesseract and brought to safety on a space station. Here's an interesting connection between Interstellar and Tenet. In the Tesseract, Cooper somehow realizes that the Tesseract has been designed by five-dimensional beings in order to save humanity. Not only that, Cooper realizes that these beings are actually humans in the future. As Cooper explains to TARS, somewhere in their fifth dimension, they saved us. Don't you get it yet, TARS? They're not beings, they're us. What I've been doing for Murph, they're doing for me, for all of us. Tars tells Cooper, people couldn't build this. And then Cooper says, not yet. One day, not you and me, but a people, a civilization that's evolved past the four dimensions we know. So in Interstellar, the human race is saved by future humans who are more advanced than we are. 
Similarly, in Tenet, the world is saved by a future organization and a future protagonist who can communicate and travel backwards in time to save it. I find this a helpful dialogue partner with the Christian faith and eschatology because, similarly, Christians believe that the salvation of our world comes from a human in the future, Jesus Christ, who is also called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. What do I mean that Jesus is in the future? For one thing, I mean that because he is divine, he exists outside of time as we understand it. Like the future protagonist, Jesus has a big-picture perspective of history that we don't have. Also, like the future humans in a fifth dimension, Jesus is in a realm or a dimension far beyond ours, more advanced. He is in glory with God the Father. The Christian faith is a journey to that future realm where Jesus already dwells, but it's also an experience of that same Jesus in our midst, here and now, in our present reality. This might clarify what I mean. Like those fifth-dimensional humans, God, through Jesus, steps into our reality, out of eternity, and into our dimension. He does this most significantly through his incarnation, when God takes on human form in Jesus and is born of a human mother, the Virgin Mary. In this fusion of divinity and humanity, Jesus brings the eternal kingdom of God to earth. And on earth, he teaches people the truth and the paths of righteousness. He heals the sick and casts out demons, all of these being signs that God's reign has come and is coming in more fullness. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, he conquers the spiritual forces of evil and triumphs over death itself, paving a way for us to follow through death into everlasting life. It's like uh, reverse entropy again, except it's like reverse death, where Jesus uses death to conquer death and bring about life. Author and professor J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, explains the incarnation and resurrection of Christ effectively with a literary term he develops called eucatastrophe, which is a combination of the word catastrophe and the Greek suffix eu, which means good. The term describes a sudden turn of events that inverts evil into good for protagonists and their world. As Tolkien writes in his essay on fairy stories, I would venture to say that approaching the Christian story from this direction, it has long been my feeling, a joyous feeling, that God redeemed the corrupt making creatures men, in a way fitting to this aspect, as to others of their strange nature. The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe, but this story has entered history and the primary world. The desire and aspiration of sub-creation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation.
The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, of creation. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. But God does not only intervene in the incarnation and resurrection of Christ, and this is now me speaking, not Tolkien. Christians believe that God continues bringing his future kingdom into our present reality through his body, the church, and through his Holy Spirit, intervening and transforming our situation to save not only our race, but also the whole world. And so, in ending this reflection, I will read another passage that I believe illustrates one way that God brings heaven to earth. God brings eternity into our present reality. This was written by Metropolitan Anthony Bloom in the book Courage to Pray. In the passage, he begins by unpacking Jesus' dialogue with his mother when she asks him to turn water into wine at a wedding in Cana. And then he explains how we are called to be like the Virgin Mary, having such a faith in Jesus that opens up new possibilities for him to work in the world through us. The moment comes in the midst of the feast when the wine runs out. There follows a disjointed-sounding conversation. Mary says, They have no more wine. Woman, what is there between you and me? Christ answers. My hour has not yet come. Instead of telling her son that she is his mother and the hour for kindness and compassion is always come, Mary says nothing. She simply turns to the servants and says, Whatever he tells you, do it. And Christ, contrary to what he has just said, blesses the washing water, and it becomes the wine of the kingdom. How can we understand this conversation and the contradiction between Christ's words and actions? Doesn't Christ's question to his mother mean something like this? What relationship gives you the right to approach me thus? Is it because you are my natural mother who gave me birth? Is it because you are my closest natural relation? If this is why, I can do nothing because the kingdom has not yet come. And Mary, instead of answering him, brings the kingdom by showing that she has perfect faith in him, that the words she has pondered in her heart from the beginning have been fruitful, and she sees him for what he is, the word of God. But then conditions are right for the kingdom. God is present because she has given herself to him completely with total faith. He can act freely without forcing nature because he is in his own domain. So he works the first miracle of the gospel. We too can be in the same situation as Mary. We too can make God's kingdom come wherever we are in spite of the unbelief of the people we are with. Simply by having complete faith in the Lord 
and thus showing ourselves to be children of the kingdom. This is a crucially important act of intercession. The fact that we are present in a situation alters it profoundly because God is then present with us through our faith. Wherever we are, at home with our family, with friends when a quarrel is about to begin, at work or even simply in the underground, the street, the train, we can recollect ourselves and say, Lord, I believe in you. Come and be among us. And by this act of faith in a contemplative prayer, which does not ask to see, we can intercede with God, who has promised his presence when we ask for it. Sometimes we have no words. Sometimes we do not know how to act wisely. But we can always ask God to come and be present. And we shall see how often the atmosphere changes, quarrels stop, peace comes. This is not a minor mode of intercession, although it is less spectacular than a great sacrifice. We see in it again how contemplation and action are inseparable, that Christian action is impossible without contemplation. We see also how such contemplation is not a vision of God alone, but a deep vision of everything enabling us to see its eternal meaning. Contemplation is a vision not of God alone, but of the world in God. So that brings an end to my reflection on uh, the, the end of the world in those two films, Tenant and Interstellar. But uh, Metropolitan Anthony's reflections are a good segue into my next reflection, because Metropolitan Anthony speaks about the combination between con contemplation and action. And my next, uh, my next reflection is also about that the importance of both approaches. Um, and it's also about a theme that's been running through the previous reflection, and that theme being climate change, because in both films, the end of the world uh, comes through climate change. That's the portrayal of the end of the world in those films. So now I'm going to read an article I wrote that concerns climate change. And it fits with the episode's theme of spoilers ahead for a couple of reasons. The first is a grim reason that scientists tell us that our world is being spoiled, to put it lightly, and will continue to spoil until we change our behaviors. The second is a more hopeful reason. As Christians, we believe we know the end of the story, the ultimate end, that God will make a new heavens and a new earth, preserving and restoring all that is good in this present world. This doesn't remove our responsibility to care for God's world, 
and change our selfish behaviors, since the damage we do to this planet has lasting consequences. However, I believe it means we can respond to climate change out of a hope that goes deeper than fear. Our vision can go further beyond despair to the hopeful foundation of God's future, and that can motivate us to do all that we are tasked to do in the life we have been given. So here's the article published this past March by Premier Christianity, and I've made a few slight edits. I have been enjoying hearing the spring bird song in the mornings. Last year, when lockdown first began, the calls of blackbirds, blue tits, and other birds from nearby trees were more distinct than usual due to less traffic on the roads. Birdsong reminds me that there is more to the climate change conversation than guilt and fear. Let me explain. Usually, when I read articles or watch videos about climate change, the driving force behind them is either guilt, for example by graphically depicting the suffering or destruction of wildlife, or fear, such as by declaring statistics about rising sea levels. Guilt and fear are understandable, but without but a more fundamental reason for conserving the natural world is that we are called to love it. Without love, we won't go far in preserving life and living sustainably. Emphasizing guilt and fear is ineffective. Frameworks, a think tank that researches and publishes on communication and social change, has found that heavily depicting doom in the media only breeds fatalism. People tend to either reject the claims or think the problems are too great to be overcome. Instead, they argue, we need to frame issues by balancing problems with potential solutions. Like this positive spin, I believe framing climate change through a lens of love will more effectively motivate people to care for the world. Further, love more comprehensively addresses the heart of the problem than guilt and fear. Even if we succeed at temporarily mitigating some of the most extreme effects of climate change, without cultivating an appreciation for the natural world and a desire to protect it for its own sake, we will, as a species, remain prone to making similar mistakes in the future. The underlying causes of our damaged relationship with the natural world will remain unresolved. Until we learn to love the world, we will act for its well-being only when we feel threatened. As Christians, we know that we are called to a self-emptying and fearless love modeled by Jesus, a love that, in the words of the Apostle Paul, always perseveres. Perseverance is important because much of the world is already dying, not the planet in its entirety so much as the ecologies of abundance from which we humans have flourished, as priest Reagan Sutterfield writes. Giving examples of wildlife refuges, landscapes, and species that are dying, he argues that it's too late to stop this death. Our task now, like visiting a loved one dying in hospice, is to love the earth to its end. If such a field is right, then evoking guilt or fear is not as appropriate as cultivating a persevering love for the world. Just as we would visit a loved one in hospice out of love for them, 
so our care for the earth should not firstly come from trying to save the earth or ourselves, but simply out of love for it. Jesus models this love when, upon hearing that Lazarus has died, he weeps. Why would Jesus, who knows he can raise Lazarus from the dead, mourn Lazarus' death? It's because he loves him. Jesus' tears express the depths of his love for Lazarus, out of which Jesus raises him to new life. Could it be that Jesus weeps over the death of his creation? Might we, called, might, might we be called to share that same grief, not foremost over our contribution to the world's destruction or our own fate, although there is a place for that, but first simply out of love for it? Perhaps we can begin to cultivate this kind of love by understanding the natural world as God's gift to us, through which God provides everything we need, practical needs, of course, but also delight and beauty, such as from sunlight falling through the branches of spring birch trees. I'm not downplaying our role as stewards of creation or the problems the world faces, which we must take seriously. But we should also remember that God delights in his created world, and we who were made in his image are called to do the same, even during its death. Perhaps it is only out of this love that we can best participate in God's work of restoring it to new life. And now we will listen to a song, a piece of music composed by Scott Stevens, who's been featured several times in Foreshadow and Forecast. This was actually our first piece that we published in the beginning, at the end of 2020, called Dawn Will Prevail.
And now, to end this episode, I will read two poems published in Foreshadow this past year that do well at cherishing this world. The first poem is In the Time of COVID-19 by Rosemary Power. The urban friend of friend who wished, though skilled in academy and internet, to be when outside less outside recovered knowledge said, yearning to learn again. I can't join in enjoying the weeds between the cracks of walls and pavements and our enforced time to look. But did you never blow a dandelion to tell the time? Chew honey from clover, make a daisy chain, yellow the chin with buttercup to gauge your preference, have a brush with a nettle, prick yourself with thistles, scratch yourself on brambles, and eat the fruit the birds left. See bindweed and budlia along the railway lines, or ivy creep up boarded windows. Did you never bust through hills heathered and brackened, see May spring white beside the motorway? Did you harvest conkers in the park, see red of rowan, elders purple, or watch the silver slender of a wind-swaged birch? Is it now so vast a task to trust forgotten knowledge, one foot in Eden? Name the vetch or celandine, columbine, cuckoo pint, groundsel, forget-me-not? Do we need to stoop again with the close eyes of childhood, lest we close our minds against both neighboring death and greening earth? Bees feeding through flowers, beetles below them, birds above them? and the stars above us all. And the final poem is God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. What are your responses and thoughts on the topics discussed today? We'd welcome any comments or feedback to contribute to the discussion, so please do get in touch by emailing foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com. You can also visit foreshadowmagazine.com to read new writings and listen to other work posted every week. Next week, we'll be posting a a nonfiction piece about refugees and asylum seekers on Foreshadow Magazine. So do check that out. And if you know anyone you think would enjoy and appreciate our work, 
please share foreshadow and forecast with them. Thanks for listening. That's the forecast for today. Thank you.